Paula said to me, remember to introduce yourself. Uh, we're trying to be very intentional. We always have guests here at Loft, and we always have people who are watching us, including, by the way, some of your parents. Um, so uh, I'm Mary Halst, the college chaplain. Uh, we're trying, I, I, at Regathering, which you know, you know, I sat down after the end of Regathering and I said, oh man, I forgot to introduce myself. And I keep forgetting it. And Paul is so gracious toward me. Um, we are looking today at Mark chapter 5. This can be found in your pew Bibles on page 816, Mark 5. We'll be reading verses 21 to 43 together. Mark 5. Page 816, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, that is, back to Capernaum, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you? How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When Jesus entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? A child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. Jesus strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. 
It was Tuesday. I was 12 years old. It was a normal day. We were eating breakfast and all of a sudden... All of a sudden, I felt... She got faint. She was burning up and then clammy and... I don't know what happened. Really, it was all so fast. I got so sick. Something was wrong. We called the doctor and he came out and... It was bad. He said... He said... He said it was really bad. It was bad. He said it was really bad and she probably... He, the doctor told them that I wasn't going to keep living. I mean, what do you do? There had to be... I mean, my dad is trying to figure out something he could do and I guess he'd heard about this guy, Jesus. He'd heard about him from other pastors around or something and... I've heard Jesus heal people. people. So I went to the middle of town. He was there. I ran up and I... I'd been looking for him, you know? I heard things and I was so sick and... So he ran out looking for Jesus. I guess hoping he could do something. I wanted him to do something. Jesus, can you come to my house, my daughter? Please, can you just come? So my dad asked him to come right away. It felt like forever. I had been sick for, I don't know, 12 years. And he said, please come right away. My daughter, she needs you fast. And I was hoping maybe I would get better. Maybe it would stop if I could just... If Jesus could just come to the house, I thought, you know, he could do something. If maybe I could just touch. But I kept getting hotter and sicker. He said he would come. We could go to the house, so we went. If I could just reach his clothes, just the edge of his shirt, maybe that would be enough. And no one would know and, and then Jesus stopped. He just stopped. We were going and... And it was. It my heart stopped. stopped. The bleeding stopped. Twelve years stopped. He just stopped in the road. They stopped and Jesus said, Who touched me? Who touched you? There were hundreds of people around him, and he's asking, who touched me? He said, I felt it. Who touched me? Who touched you? What if I didn't want anyone to see, to know? I thought... What if... I'm afraid. I thought we were going to my house, to my daughter. I thought I would just touch. Who's not touching you? I did it. I touched you. What? I touched you and it stopped. This sick, dirty woman came up and said, I touched you. And they just stood there talking about it all. Then they came. She was dead. And I was dead. It stopped. And I could... My daughter's dead. 
have a life. I couldn't hear the words. I remember his exact words. He said, Jesus was talking. He said, daughter, your faith rescued you. You could have saved her. Go in peace, he said. You could have rescued my little girl. They planned a funeral. My daughter is dead. Then he kept going down the road. He could have saved her, but he didn't. Daughter, it was over. Just like that. Daughter? It was over. I had a daughter, but she's dead. I came to you for help with my daughter. Now what are you going to do? But Jesus came anyway. What are you going to do for a dead girl? I'm well. Daughter, your faith made you well. He insisted, so we went. When we got there, they were preparing the funeral. All these people from church brought over food. I thought about all the people I missed, all the life I hadn't been around for. And Jesus just walked right into the middle of the whole thing and said, she's not dead. It was like I had come back to life or something. He said, she's just asleep. People laughed. She was dead. My friends didn't even recognize me. They knew I was dead. They knew. They didn't know who I was. I mean, I was cold and gray. He took us up to her room. She was so still and cold. She was... I mean, I was. I was never there. Life happened without me. She was. She wasn't there. They didn't know what to do seeing me. They came in, and I guess Jesus said some stuff. He told us, she's just asleep, and we're going to wake her up. And I don't really remember it, but... Well, what I do remember is this. I thought, how cold. How cold I am. And it's so dark. And then I feel warm air moving over my face, and I hear someone. Jesus stood over her like it was morning and said, Little girl, get up. Get up, little girl. Get up. Because of him. And I opened my eyes. It was him. It was her. It was him. And he smiled. And my mom cried, and my dad hugged Jesus for about 15 minutes. It was her, my daughter, awake, alive. It was Jesus. He made me well. I was all better. Jesus told us to get her something to eat. I could get back to life. All those people were still downstairs with the funeral food. So we brought all the food together. And I wanted to throw a party or something. So instead of having a wake, we had a party. We had a party. The best party. A party for my daughter who's alive. I can have a life. A life.
I can have a life. So we've been looking at these incidents where Jesus interacts with people. We've seen him interact with Thomas in the first week. And we learned that faith involves examining Jesus. Jesus is not afraid of our questions. We learned that faith happens in community. That's where we find life. In the second week, we looked at the father of the demon-possessed child. And we learned that when it comes to Jesus, just the tiniest, little, weakest faith is enough. When we present our faith, I believe, help my unbelief, Jesus is able to move in in strength and power. And last week, we looked at the faith of the centurion who acts on behalf of his servant. And we learned that faith means submitting ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ because he is the Son of God. And this week, we see these two people stepping out in faith. And we see that faith involves risk. It doesn't seem that risky at first glance what Jairus does. I mean, his daughter is sick and he goes to the one person who could help him. It's a little like having strep throat and going to the health center. That's not very risky. But Mark tells us that Jairus was the synagogue leader. He was the one in charge of the synagogue. He was the one to be sure that everything that happened on the Sabbath happened the way it was supposed to happen decently and in good order. It was his job to be sure that everybody had their seats, that there were enough books and things, that there were enough scrolls for people to read, that everyone was appointed, you're the reader today, you're the speaker, you sit over there. Everything was to be done under his watch. And a few weeks ago, this troublemaker Jesus had shown up in the middle of the synagogue on a Sabbath and healed somebody. Oh, what a ruckus that was. And then all these people started coming to Capernaum, and so their services were packed, and he had to find more people and more chairs. Basically, Jesus had made his life a lot more complicated. And there were probably people who had come to Jairus in the last few weeks, or however long it had been, and they had said to him, don't let that Jesus guy back in here. He's a troublemaker. Do you hear the things that he's saying? Even his own family thinks he's crazy. Don't be associated with that guy. But his daughter is sick. And things are getting worse. And as a father, that's that's his job. He's supposed to care for his daughter. And everything he's done, everything he's tried hasn't worked. Daughters had no status outside of their father's love and protection. A a daughter went from the home of her father to the home of her husband, and because this little one was almost 12, he had probably already started to think about whom she would marry. He was already looking forward to the day, and maybe a year or two, when she would be wed, and then maybe grandbabies shortly after that. He had plans for her. He was ready. And so when she became sick, he did everything he could. His reputation meant nothing compared to the life of his daughter. He risked his future 
for hers. He goes to Jesus, he falls down at his knees, and he begs the synagogue leader. Begs. He risks everything. Now, unlike the little girl, the woman who had the flow of blood had no advocate. She had nobody, nobody to speak up for her, nobody to tell her, I'll go for you, I'll go get Jesus for you, you just stay. Because while we don't know much of her backstory, we know that anybody who had a flow of blood for 12 years would have been unclean. No one would have touched her. She wasn't allowed to go to the synagogue. She wasn't allowed to go to temple to make the pilgrimage, to join in the feast, to have people over to her home. And I think we picture this woman so often as kind of like stooped over and haggard and old. But she was probably in her late 20s. Imagine that the flow of blood happened as a result of a complication in pregnancy, not all that uncommon, maybe around the age of 15 or 16. And here she was all alone these years later. No child, no husband, no money, and not getting any better. And so, like the father of the demon-possessed boy, and like the centurion, she had heard about this Jesus. But unlike them, she doesn't walk right up to him and say, hey, could you help me out? I could use a little help. She says, you know, even if I touch his clothes, that'll work. If I just, if I just touch his clothes, that's going to work. Why did she think that? In Mark 3, there's this little verse that tells us that even though Jesus was out touching and healing and rebuking and commanding and doing his things, there were people who would press in and try to touch him. But this idea of touching his clothes? Scholars think that this is a pretty good theory as to why she did what she did. She was a Jewish woman. She probably knew the prophets very well. And there are two prophecies in particular that inform her actions here. Zechariah writes that the day will come at some point when 10 non-Jews, 10 foreigners, 10 people who speak other languages and come from other places come and take hold of the hem of a garment of a Jew and say to him, let us go with you because you know where God is. Then there's this other prophet, Malachi, who says that when the son of righteousness rises, that's another phrase for the Messiah, when the son of righteousness arises, he will have healing in his wings. Now, Zechariah and Malachi are both talking about a particular piece of garment, a particular piece of clothing worn by Jewish men. They're talking about the prayer shawl. This is a more formal prayer shawl. This isn't one that would be worn under the clothes. But if you're around Orthodox Jews today, you can sometimes see their tassels hanging out from underneath their pants. Right underneath their hem, right there. And in the tassel, there are five knots. One for each book of the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it was believed that when the Messiah came, he would be so righteous, he would be so holy, that he would obey every law in the Torah. 
In fact, he would be so holy that if you came up to him and you touched his wings, there would be healing there. And so when this woman says, if I just touch his clothes, she's not talking about grabbing his arm, his sleeve, his leg. She's talking about grabbing the tassel. She's talking about declaring to everybody, this guy is the Messiah. This guy is the son of righteousness. And you know she had a plan. Her plan was, I'm just going to sidle up to him in the crowd, grab the tassel, and then sidle away. <laughs> no one's going to know. Be all sneaky-like. <laughs> She's got a plan. She's ready to work the plan. The plan doesn't go quite like she likes. Who touched my clothes? He says. And Jesus isn't thinking at that moment, man, I just had this thing cleaned. <laughs> He's thinking... Who, who around me right now believes I'm Messiah? Who, who out there right now is stepping forward in faith? Who's making a big risk? Who's, who's doing this? Who's touching me? Who's grabbing the hem of my garment? And she comes forward, Mark says, with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling because she is unclean and she has touched the one who is clean. She is unholy and she has touched the one who is holy. She has taken a huge risk of faith. She has put herself out there. With fear and trembling, she comes to Jesus and says, I did it, it was me. And I love how Mark writes that she told him the whole truth, like it just came flooding out of her. Here's the story. She takes a risk of faith. That all of her praying and meditating on Zechariah and Malachi, all of her knowledge of the prophets, all of the words that she knows about Messiah, all the things that she has studied, are they true? All of the internal wrestling she has done with God for 12 years. Is it true? Does he really heal? Does he really love? Is this who God really is? Stepping out in faith involves risk. And there are internal risks and there are external risks. For the woman with the flow of blood, the risks were more internal. Is this who God really is? For Jairus, the risks were external. I'm laying my entire reputation out there on this guy. Faith involves risk. Faith involves risk. We get that. Some of us know those internal wrestlings very well. We've been praying for things and hoping for things. 
We've been meditating on the word of the Lord. We've been trying to figure out who God is. And every time we pray something else that isn't quite answered the way we were thinking or wanted or hoped for, we think and the internal judgment comes, you're such an idiot to believe this stuff. You're such an idiot to keep trying. Why do you keep doing this? And others of us wrestle with the external threats, the external challenges to our faith. Some of you have studied off campus, you've studied abroad, and people have challenged your faith. Some of you are working in internships where people wonder about your faith. Some of you have family members who wonder why in the world you attend a Christian college. Some of you right now are working or living or around people who judge you and mock your faith and how you express it. They mock your morality, they mock your sobriety, they mock your virginity. Why do you do this? This is foolishness. You know, faith is risky. There are internal challenges and there are external challenges and sometimes they're all there at the same time. Faith involves risk. But this isn't news to Jesus. When Jairus came up to him, he knew who he was. He knew what he was risking. He knew the havoc he had caused in this man's life since he arrived on the scene. He knew. And so when Jairus comes and says, please go with me and help my daughter, he doesn't hesitate. He's like, you took a big risk. I'm going with you. But then suddenly, he feels the power go out of him. And when we get to heaven, boy, isn't that on the list of things we're going to ask him? Like, what do you mean by that? But he felt something happen, and so he stops in the middle of it because he knows that there's somebody else who's just taken a big risk of faith. And so he calls her out. And what does he name her? Daughter. Daughter. Yes. Here's a woman who has been cut off from relationship, who has no status. And what does the first word out of his mouth do for her? It gives her status. You are daughter. You are worthy of love. You are worthy of touch. You are worthy to let a synagogue leader wait so I can attend to you, my daughter. Daughter, you have risked in faith. And Jesus knows that this miracle needs to be made public, not to mock the woman, not to call her out, but to restore her to community. For 12 years, nobody could touch her. Nobody wanted to be with her. Nobody wanted to be anywhere near her. And so in the middle of that crowd, he takes the unclean and he makes her clean. He takes the unholy and he makes her holy. He takes the one who has been cast off and he brings her into community with one word, daughter. Daughter. Daughter, your faith, your chutzpah, your boldness, your risk. God saved you. Go in peace. And the Greek here really is not, you're, you're going to be well. It's, your suffering is over. It's, it's over. It's just, it's done. It's done. 
Your suffering is done. Daughter. And then, as she is standing upright for the first time in a long time and looking people in the eye for the first time in a long time and smiling for the first time in a long time, Jesus hears the words coming toward the synagogue ruler, your daughter is dead. The worst moment of a parent's life. We did everything we could. She's gone. Don't bother him anymore. And Jesus looks into the eyes of the grief-stricken father, looks into the tears that are pooling right now, and he says to him, don't fear, just believe. And imagine this father half walking, half being carried by his friends back to the house where as soon as he hears the the flute playing, as soon as he hears the voices of the mourners, he knows this is real. This is real. She's really gone. It's really over. It's done. And then Jesus says something really odd. Why are you making all this commotion? She's not dead. She's asleep. No, she's not. She's dead. Like she is seriously dead. You don't bring out the mourners and the ham salad and the jello unless somebody's dead. She's dead. She's gone. Okay, it wouldn't be ham salad there. It'd be. <laughs> Those of you from Pease, Minnesota, it would be ham, ham buns, but Capernaum, it'd be like falafel or something. But there are all the markers of death in the house. There are all the markers of death in the space. She's really gone. She's really dead. So why does Jesus say this? Well, I think he's sending a coded message to Jairus. Have you noticed in the Gospels that we don't usually get to know the names of the people that Jesus heals? It's not like uh, Brian was paralyzed and so his four friends, Tony, Lance, Rob, and Craig, all lowered him through the roof. (laughs) Right? We're not told that. The centurion Gaius came to him and said, my servant Reuben needs help. No, we're we're not told any names. Other than Bartimaeus, it's really hard to find somebody who gets healed by Jesus to be named in Scripture. Except here we have Jairus. He's named Jairus, the Hebrew is Yair. The Hebrew for Yair translates either to he enlightens or he awakes. Hey, he awakes. She's not dead. She's sleeping. A little coded message to the father. And then when he sends everybody else out and he goes to the little girl, he says to her the thing that a dad would say when it's time for a little girl to get up. Talitha Coom. Talitha Coom, breakfast is ready. Talitha Coom, time to fetch the water. Talitha Coom, let's go. Little girl, 
get up. Little girl, get up. And then he tells them to keep this one secret because it's early in the ministry and people aren't quite ready for a resurrection yet. And so Peter, James, and John, and the Jairuses keep this one as much as they can to themselves about what happened and what happened and how he did it and what he said. But he did it. In both of these instances, when a person acts in faith, when a person takes a big risk, when a person puts it all on the line, Jesus just doesn't meet them. Jesus goes above and beyond. I'm not just going to stop your flow of blood. I'm going to restore you to the community. I'm going to name you daughter. I'm going to make your life better than it's ever been before. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. I'm not going to heal your daughter from a fever. I'm going to raise your daughter from the dead. I'm going to go above and beyond anything you asked or imagined. You have stepped out in faith, and I will come and meet you. I know the risk it took for you to reach out and grab that tassel. I know the risk it was for you to fall down on, on your knees and ask me for help. I know that risk. I see it. I understand it. I delight in it, and I respond. Faith involves risk, and Jesus knows that. Do not fear, he says to Jairus, but believe. Faith involves risk. Internal, external risk. I have a friend who's been praying for the same thing for seven years. For seven years. Sleepless nights, thousands of tears, Seven years. I asked him, how have you kept your faith through this? And he said, there are two reasons. One of them is I've seen God care for me in lots of other ways. So even though this big issue in my life remains unresolved, there are lots of other ways in which God is caring for me so that I can carry this thing. He said, but the other thing is, I know that God's not through yet. And until he asks me to stop praying, or until he tells me no, I'm going to keep praying. Because I know God's not through here yet. When Jesus said to Jairus, do not fear, but believe, he did not in that moment expect Jairus to just become all bright-eyed and stroll gently to his house while talking about the weather. He knew that in that moment, Jairus needed to be able to focus on the end of the story, and this wasn't it. Death was not the end of the story. Jesus still had more to do. You ain't seen nothing yet. That's what don't fear, believe means. I'm not through yet. I've got more to do yet. You have stepped out in faith, and I'm going to respond beyond your asking or imagining. I'm not through.
through yet. He's not through yet. He's not through yet. Some of you are on that road from the time you've asked Jesus or something to the time when he responds, and that's hard space to be in. But he's not through yet. And some of you are in the internal wrestling where you're studying the word of God and you're praying and wondering, are these things that I've always been taught about the Messiah actually real? And that's hard space to be in. But what these two stories wedded together in Mark teach us is this. When we step out in faith, Jesus comes right back. Jesus honors risky faith. Jesus honors bold faith. And Jesus isn't through yet. So what are you going to ask for? What are you going to keep praying about? What are you going to persist in as long as it takes? If it takes 12 years, what are you going to keep praying for? What are you going to keep assailing for? How are you going to take risks for your faith? Lent starts on Wednesday. What's a spiritual discipline that you could do as a risk? If you've never fasted, try fasting. If you've never prayed out loud before a meal at the Commons Dining Hall, pray out loud at a meal. What's a risky thing you can do for your faith? Do you need to give your money away? Do you need to witness to somebody that you're living with and you're not sure where he or she is in their relationship with God? Do you need to actually get some of these faith and doubt books and take this seriously? What is the risk that the Holy Spirit is whispering in your heart right now that you get to take? We've spent four weeks looking at who Jesus is. Jesus is someone who loves people who take big risks in faith. He loves a faith community that encourages each other to be people of faith. And he loves people who doubt and don't want to risk and are scared and don't want to surrender. Because that's who Jesus is. And he's not through yet. He's not through yet. Because we know that the one who taught by the lake in Capernaum is the one who went all the way to the cross, the one who rose again from the dead, who taught his disciples for 40 days after that, gave them permission to tell all the stories that he wouldn't let them tell before, and then ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he will come back. And as Gandalf says, everything sad will be made untrue. Everything will be put right. So take a risk. Step out in faith.
because Jesus isn't done yet. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for our brother Jairus. We thank you for the woman whose name we don't know. Our brother and our sister who stepped out in faith, who took big risks, who understand what it means to wrestle, who understand the internal and external challenges to faith of putting all of their hopes on someone who seemed very unpredictable. We thank you for them. We thank you even more for Jesus. We thank you that he is the one with healing in his wings, that he is the one who invites us to step out in faith, that he is the one that says to us, Talitha Kum, little girl, get up, live, be alive, because I'm not done yet. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, stir up in us where you need us to risk. Surround us with people who can help us Take a leap of faith. And we pray this in the only way we can, through Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of Righteousness. Amen.